welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. On election night in 2016, many Democrats from different parts of the party, different ideological persuasions, different levels of engagement, found themselves absolutely shocked and horrified by what they were seeing coming in on the news. Donald Trump's victory was both very unwelcome news, but at the same time almost incomprehensible. This was not what they had seen coming. In this week's episode, I'm going to be looking not so much at what happened, but the question I'm going to be exploring with my guest is, after that seemingly incomprehensible loss, what did Democrats take away from it? How did they rationalise it afterwards? What did they learn from it? What narratives did they construct about what had gone wrong? And then how did those narratives in turn impact their choices in the 2020 primary? It's something, as long-time listeners will know, I've spent a good amount of time thinking about the 2016 and the 2020 primaries. I've done so much more from a political theory perspective. This episode is going to be a full-on look at the political science of that, although I don't think, I think those are at least partially overlapping fields. So, it's very exciting to introduce my guest, who I think will be familiar to many of you, uh, Seth Maskett. Seth is Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. He's the author of The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy, and No Middle Ground, How Informal Party Organizations Control Nominations and Polarize Legislators, and also his upcoming Learning from Loss, Democrats 2016 to 2020, which is what we're discussing today. His research has appeared in the American Journal of Political Science, the Journal of Politics, the British Journal of Political Science, State Politics, and Policy Quarterly, and other peer-reviewed publications. And as I said, he may well be familiar to many of you already, as he contributes regularly to 538, which is something I pretty regularly tune into 538 articles and podcasts and so on, I'm sure many of you do too, Pacific Standards, and Vox.com's Mischief of Faction blog. His work has also appeared in The Monkey Cage, Politico, and The New York Times. He's also pretty active on Twitter, where he has a large following, so some of you may have also, may also know him from there. Just quickly, before we do get started, if you are interested in this topic, and, you know, I definitely am, um, I've got quite a big body of work on the 2016 and the 2020 primaries on the podcast, as well as on the Trump presidency in general. So I just had the great privilege of um, being a moderator for a panel discussion of some of the world's leading political theorists and political scientists on the current state of thinking of democracy on the US left. That's in the podcast feed. Also, if you're interested just in my views, I've done some pretty extended analysis and commentary of 
the sort of political theory of the 2020 Democratic primary. Um, the last one of those I did, I think, was just called Race and the 2020 Primary. And that, I think, got some really positive responses, so please do go back and check all of that out. In this one, this is much more of a political science one, which is a literature I'm not as familiar with, and I'll be completely honest about that one up front, and indeed you'll hear me say a few times in this, I, I don't know, or I could stand to be corrected, or, you know, this is my best uh, uh, guess, but nonetheless, we have done a little bit of political science on this show, and even as a outsider or amateur in it, I find it absolutely fascinating and can nerd out on it for hours. And luckily today, uh, luckily for the audience, I guess, um, I am joined today by a real expert who really, really knows his stuff here and was able to bring um, a lot of insight to this conversation. And um, I definitely got a lot out of it and really enjoyed having it. And so... I hope you will too. Like I say, I've been nerding out on the 2020 election on this podcast for a long time now. We've covered it from all sorts of different angles, and I hope you've enjoyed my somewhat eclectic coverage of it. So, in that vein, um, I am very, very excited to bring you Professor Seth Maskett. <laughs> I am joined today by Professor Seth Maskett. Seth, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So just by way of introduction, um, how do you describe, um, what do you, you, obviously you're in political science, but what do you like to read and write and teach and think about? I mean, the main thing that has motivated me in my research is political parties. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a lot of questions about parties that I, I I don't think they're incredibly well understood. Mm -hmm. um, they have, uh, you know, I, I, I started off in this line of work studying like state and local parties. I did my first book on California parties, trying to sort of understand why uh, California has some of like the weakest organized parties in the country, yet it's one of the most partisan states. Um, with the most liberal Democrats in office and the most conservative Republicans in office. And I, I wanted to understand that phenomenon. And, you know, this is research I started like 20 years ago, and parties have changed a lot since then, and they're, they're acting in very bizarre ways today. Um, so, you know, I was, I was really kind of interested in, in pivoting over to national politics for this project, trying to understand, you know, just sort of catch a party in the act of making a decision. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, having a conversation about why it lost one election and what it needs to do for the next one. There's... You know, there's been some good, uh, very good um, academic studies about the decisions that parties make and the consequences of those decisions and, uh, you know, looking at how they, how they, you know, what they put in their in their platforms or who they nominate or, or which directions they move. There hasn't been a whole lot about the, the conversations that party activists and others sort of have with each other about what direction to take the party. And I, I was really interested in capturing that for this project. 
Um, I think we might get we'll, we'll probably get back to parties at some point in this. I've got a, I've got a kind of nerd question. Is like, what yeah. did the physical process of writing this book look like? I'm always interested in this because, like, if I'm talking to a political philosopher, it's like you read the papers, you sort of pull together your material, you get your thesis, but then say the act of writing a biography is just a completely different set of activities you're going to be doing. So, like, what did the day-to-day of pulling together this book look like? So this was an unusual book for me. I mean, I, 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 this is my third book now, more traditional political science academic type books where I'm dealing with a phenomenon that there's a set of data that exists. I can go back far back into the past as necessary um, to find the material I need. And for this book, I really wanted to capture things as they were unfolding. Um, I had this idea for this in 2016, figuring um, whichever party loses in 2016 is is going to have a serious discussion with itself. It's going to have to really look in the mirror and decide what happened and make some serious changes for next time. My impression at the time was that was going to be the Republicans. Um, they seemed to be on their way to a bad loss after a very weird nomination cycle. Um, it looked very likely that Donald Trump was going to lose that year. So I was thinking, oh, it'll be interesting to talk to Republicans with this. Um, that didn't happen, obviously. And so, you know, I ended up pivoting to, to study the Democrats. But I was really, and I, I discussed this with the, uh, my editors at, uh, at Cambridge, the publishers for this book, um, when I started off, that this was basically poli-sci in real time. Um, that I was, I had some ideas for the way this thing would likely roll out, but I didn't know. Um, and there was a a fair chance that I would, you know, I was making some assumptions ahead of time that party activists were important, that the decisions they made would affect who the party nominated next time around. Um, there was a, uh, I think a reasonable chance that this whole project was just going to crash and burn, that I would be following all these people who would end up with a, you know, they would go one way and the party nomination would go another, or they wouldn't be able to make a decision. Um, so it was, it was sort of stressful in that regard and that I didn't really know what the end product looked like when I started it and when I was in the middle of it. Um, I just kept doing interviews and gathering information. There was some sort of theoretical and historical stuff I could write ahead of time, but a lot of it I really needed to wait until fairly late in the process. To when, when, did you, when did you finish? When did you like hit submit, as it were? So uh, I had agreed with the publisher that it was uh, that I could get a final draft to them by the beginning of April of this year. Okay. Um, and that was, and with the idea that this would come out between the party conventions and the general election. Uh, and you weren't. You this was going to be an election year book. You weren't tempted to leave it until after the general because. It's it's going to land differently. I mean, I do podcast episodes about theoretical stuff and think this is going to land. This is going to sound like like this is going to sound very different to the years of an audience living in a Trump second term or a Biden first term. You know. Yes, yes, it will. And I I very much wanted this to be about the nomination. Um, I figured there'll you know there'll there'll be a number of books written about this general election, and it's it's a weird enough year that there's certainly plenty to talk about. Um, I wanted this to really come before that, and I'm and and just say, look, setting that aside, I'm um, uh, setting aside the whole general election this year. 
Um, I wanted to discuss this one nomination. Um, you know, catch what's more or less a party cycle from the moment it lost the last election <laughs> to the moment it uh, basically until the moment people started voting um, in the Iowa caucuses. I wanted to capture the things that the party did in, in that interval before voters, before party voters and caucus goers started weighing in. Um, so if we start at the beginning of the story, um, I think this is such an interesting cycle to cover, but in some ways it's really atypical, because most elections you sort of know what's... You, you're, you have an informed guess. But it's not just like the underdog won in this one. I think the way I would put it is to a lot of Democrats from a lot of different sections of the party, Trump winning wasn't just unlikely, it was unthinkable. So there's, there's surprise results um, off the top of my head. The 92 election in the UK was a surprise result, like we thought Kinnock was going to win it. But it wasn't unthinkable that Major would be re-elected. Um, I, and it was, it was, it was cross-ideological, so like, people who were very strong Sanders supporters, say, who I knew, they grouched a whole lot about Hillary, and on the extreme end, um, actually not even the extreme, quite a few refused to vote for her, ultimately. And I, I'd sort of debate it with them, and they really just... I talked to someone for like two hours about this, and at the end they said, but you don't really think he can win, do you? And it's like, it's like I'd say the sea was going to turn into to lemonade or something. And then within the sort of like people who were, I guess you could say the more centrist establishment part of the party, it was just assumed that this was a foregone conclusion in a way that was always a little untethered from the empirical evidence we had in that election. And the reactions people had on election night were very visible, very emotional. And even since then, people, I'll stop, but like, people talk about us being on like an alternate timeline, as if like something utterly science fiction has happened, as opposed to like, we lost an election. We lost a winnable election. It happens. You know? Anyway, I'll pause there, but do you share that same sense that in some ways that like, if you'd have say done the Republicans from 08 to 012, or um, the Democrats from 04 to 08, those cycles would be in many ways much more typical of how a party normally does this process than the one that you did. Sorry, that was a little long, but yeah. No, I, 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 I think what you're saying is right, and in the sense that it was... Um... And th this was true of a lot of the the activists I spoke to, is that they were completely disoriented by 2016. Um, that in, in many ways it was unfathomable. I I remember talking. This didn't end up in the book, but I remember talking to um, I think it was a political consultant in early 2016, a Democratic political consultant, um, just talking about the ways that the Republican race was shaping up, and uh, he was saying. You know, he's like, I'm not sure who the Republicans are going to nominate. He's like, in some ways, I would prefer that they nominate Ted Cruz, not because I think I could have an easier time beating Ted Cruz, but at least I know what that election looks like. Um, if Trump is the nominee, he's like, I have no idea what that is. I, I, do, I just don't even know what that campaign looks like. And it was and 
you know, I think a point I do try and make in the book is that um, Trump winning in November of 2016, yes, that really that messed people up. But that was sort of like, you know, just put a cap on a year of which a number of uh, really unusual things happened. Um, I think what was even weirder was his nomination uh, by the Republican Party earlier that year. Um, that was the thing I was very confident was never going to happen. Um, you know, my feeling is, and, you know, weird things can happen in general elections, particularly when, you know, you have an open seat, you know, who the candidates are, I don't think matters as much as people tend to think. Um, but he's exactly the sort of candidate who sometimes has expressed an interest historically in being president, but no party ever takes seriously and, um, and, and never really puts forward. And yet somehow it happened. Um, so that, that was in many ways a shocking thing, but yeah, the, the, the many people I spoke to were just like, none of this should have happened. All the, um, you know, all the empirical tools that they had for measuring elections in the fall, uh, in some ways kind of failed them. Um, all their political instincts that people had developed over many years in politics had, you know, that told them, well, there's no way that he gets elected. They failed them. And so they came out of 2016 just like not even sure what to fall back on. So it, it, it was a probably a very different conversation between 2016 and 2020. I mean, I think there's a few things there. I have a sort of perennial sort of frustration. Not frustration is maybe the wrong word, but just a really different perspective personally in that I always thought um, Trump was quite underrated, both in the primaries and the general. And I'm not sure I would have said I thought he was going to win. I think I generally thought he was, like, either even money or maybe, like, an underdog, but, like, a sort of 40% underdog. Not like, I think people had it in their minds this was, like, a 0.001% type of thing. Um, and then on election day, a few people from out of the country called me to ask me what I thought was going to happen, and I, fa I found myself saying he's he's going to win. Like... <laughs> Um, and I can go through my thinking there, but, like, it, it was just this weird moment of having everyone else, like, absolutely not able to just really just process that this was happening. And this very weird mixture of emotions on my part of somewhere between, like, horror and dismay, but also, like, a, a sense of smugness, perhaps? Like, I did bloody tell you, you know... <laughs> Um, and it, it's been very interesting to watch, which brings us to the topic of your book, all of those people who utterly couldn't see the obvious coming, or the obvious is perhaps strong, but utterly couldn't see something that wasn't really that unlikely coming, develop narratives about why it happened, which I think by and large are false. Like, I think the narratives people have come up with are by and large not the the correct um, autopsy. So let, let's start with them then. Let's just get through. The one I've okay. heard you talk about a lot is the, is the main one for you, if you just tallied them up, is the main one that you've heard um, the idea that we lost because Clinton talked too much about sort of quote-unquote identity politics. So that is, um, that's probably not the most mentioned narrative um although it is it's up there it's it's mm. certainly in the top three or four um you know probably the most mentioned narrative i've heard from people is 
that, um, you know, basically there was some problem with the campaign um, that they were targeting the wrong voters or um, they were, uh, you know, using the wrong sort of messaging, uh, that there was something wrong with the candidate herself, um, that she didn't give people a, you know, a compelling reason to vote for her, that um, she was too reliant on polling data that turned out to be flawed. Um, that, uh, you know, they, they weren't aware of things that were going on on the ground. You know, it was, it, you know, that, that sort of vague sense that, um, that there was something technically wrong with the campaign or that, um, you know, with a different nominee, things might've come out differently. Um, the identity politics narrative, uh, that, that, that you brought up that, I mean, I focus on that a fair amount in the book, um, cause it. It wasn't mentioned the most, but it was it was mentioned by roughly a third of the people I spoke to, and I think in some ways it's um, it's the most powerful narrative in that it comes with its own set of instructions about what to do next. Um, you know, if you decide, well, we campaigned in, in the wrong places or we used the wrong kind of ads, or you know, that's something you can fix. Um, without making, you know, major changes to the party or, or, or what the party stands for or anything like that. Um, if Democrats come out of an election thinking we focus too much on underrepresented groups, um, we spend too much time advocating for women, for people of color, for the LGBT community, um, then, and we need to, you know, sort of pull back. We need to go into some retrenchment on this whole idea of, of diversity and equality and inclusion like this, um, which has really been very much central to what the Democratic coalition is for decades now. Um, that's, you know, that's in some ways a very self-destructive uh, set of beliefs um, that, that really causes a lot of people within the party to, um, to question themselves, to question the party's mission. It, it can cause a lot of infighting within the party about what exactly to be prioritizing next. Um, and it's, uh, and, you know, for some people I spoke to, it's very depressing. It's, um, you know, there are, I, I, I spoke to um, uh, black activists within the party, to feminists within the party who, who got into it for these reasons, because they wanted to, um, you know, they, they see inequality as a major problem in the country and the Democratic Party as the instrument for, for making it better. And the idea that we have to pull back on this one central thing I care about in order to win um, is, is really kind of a very painful thing to internalize. Um, but it is also, um, that's also been an argument that the Democratic Party has w among itself you know, basically every time it loses the presidency, um, that that's you can you can see echoes of this going back at least 60 years where every time the Democrats have lost, they uh, they say, well, the, the problem was we were too beholden to black activists or the problem was the feminists. Uh, um, and you have some sort of you know, the more more moderate uh, Southern white wing of the party uh, usually say, well, you know, you know, we need to nominate more more moderate white candidates, or we need to pull back a little bit from this commitment if we if we want a chance to win. Um, this I divide that that into two explanations in my head. Tell me if you think this makes okay. sense. The message and the messenger. So it's like, did we talk too much about um, Black Lives Matter, or you know, did we use too much like intersectional language? 
The other is, did we lose because we ran a woman? And, you know, in order to be safe, um, we need to just run an old, safe-seeming white guy next time. Can, can we start with the message bit? Do you think... Do you think that's true? Because, to my mind, there's not much by, you know, Hillary Clinton said on those topics that Biden isn't also saying. It, it seems dubious to me that that was a huge deciding factor. Well, right. And this is, I think, you know, a point you mentioned earlier. Um, I don't necessarily believe that many of these narratives are accurate. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, you know, I... I I was really interested for this book in understanding what Democrats believe happened and, and what they do with those beliefs. But, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that, uh, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time getting, you know, interrogating whether these things are true or not, but, you know, I, I don't think this actually explains much of the vote, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton isn't really, uh, she didn't really say that many things that, that Joe Biden, um, uh, isn't saying today. On the other hand, um, I think in some ways, you know, someone with a long reputation of being a, a fairly moderate white guy um, has somewhat more freedom uh, to uh, to say fairly progressive things and in, in some ways kind of get away with it in a way that a, you know, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, long identified with um, with with feminism uh, probably isn't. Uh, you know, one of my a favorite little tidbit I have on this is that there was this poll done in early 2008. Um, you know, at that point, there were it was a poll of the Democratic presidential candidates at that point. And, that, and at that point, there were basically just um, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama and John Edwards, um, who were who were considered the top three at that point. And this poll was interesting. They asked people who they preferred. And then they asked people to place the candidates ideologically. You know, where who do you see as more moderate? Who do you see as more liberal? Um, and the, the Democrats who answered this survey, they said that John Edwards was the most conservative of the candidates and um, Hillary Clinton was the most liberal um, with Barack Obama somewhere in between. And in many ways, if you listen to the things that the candidates were actually saying, that probably has it completely backwards. Um, Hillary Clinton in 2008 was campaigning in kind of a hawkish way, you know, touting her foreign policy credentials. Um, John Edwards was on his like two Americas kick sounding, you know, um, you know, leaning. He'd be probably portrayed as socialist today, you know, talking about, uh, you know, advocating for labor unions and, um, you know, in the, in the forgotten people who are making less money and how we need to advocate for them. Um, but because he was a white guy with a Southern accent, um, he was perceived um, as being uh, much, much, much more moderate and could get away with a more progressive message. So I, I think you're right. There is an important dis distinction there between uh, the message and the messenger and how those people are perceived. I think there's a grain of truth to the messenger bit, but it's it's more complicated than that, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Um, you know, for, for one thing, my understanding of the evidence is that for congressional elections, the gender of the candidate doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. Indeed, there might be a slight advantage, very, very slight to, to women. 
but then there there is some data that um uh, Andrew Maxwell has some good papers on this um that levels of like sort of modern day sexism sort of low key sexist attitudes were quite a good predictor of both um voting behavior in the primary and in the general um something like to the tune of those attitudes didn't exist it might have been worth saying additional four points to hillary and so then sort of the question becomes is that an anomaly is it something specific about hillary that activates sexist attitudes um is it something another woman could overcome is it something particular to the presidency like how people think about executive power is coded as male something like that i don't i don't know um but i think we if we were looking at this as a purely abstract thing with no um stake in it and no desire to win next time um i think you just have to say like it's not clear yet and those are like a really interesting set of questions but we just don't have that much data on this we've only ever had one female nominee i'll i'll bounce that back to you do you think that's the the right takeaway on that well, there's a couple of different things in what you said there. Um, I, I want to just mention, I, you are correct that it is difficult to find an actual um, a gender effect on the vote. Um, you know, that, that, you know, women candidates seem to do about as well as male candidates. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of research suggesting they, they don't run the same way. I think um, Kelly Dittmar has some excellent research on this, a few other people. Um, looking at the language that women candidates use, um, I think there is an impression that um, male candidates can say things that women candidates can't. Now, we generally we don't get as much of, you know, we, we aren't as e easily able to test that because women candidates generally don't say the things they believe they can't say. Um, but uh, you know, Joe Biden can get up and give a, um, a nomination speech about, uh, you know, he can use words like love and light, and he can talk about, um, you know, the, the needs to prosecute bad cops in a way that, um, a, a black candidate might have a harder time saying, um, there are, um, just some things that he can say where he it doesn't sort of compound a problem for him whereas uh when women run they are immediately perceived to um to have some weaknesses that um if they talk about their emotions um then they will be immediately branded as being too emotional and therefore um you know less electable that doesn't mean that actually shows up in the vote Right. We had, you know, we don't really know if that would if, if that would undermine their voting, but that's certainly how they would be portrayed. And that's that's a portrayal there. They try to minimize. Um, and, uh, you know, if they react very strongly to uh, something that their opposing candidate says, um, they will be portrayed as emotional and out of control, whereas a male candidate would be uh, portrayed as um, someone who's firm and someone who's taking a stance. Um, so there are, you know, I think there are limitations there that we don't necessarily see translate into vote shares, but are are nonetheless still important and still con constraining on candidate behavior. Yeah, that's 
I, I think it's really interesting to think, is the presidency something different? Because mm. even noting everything you've just said, um, and certainly when I say it doesn't seem to have an res- effect on vote shares, I'm not saying there's not different attitudes, or sexism or whatever, right? Um, I think the question is, like, women can find a way to run at, you know, under different expectations that is equally successful. Could that be done for the presidency or is assessing the highest office and an office with a huge amount of symbolism around it and symbolism that I think is like male or at least stereotypically male in a lot of respects and Mm -hmm. I think whether it was right or wrong that was one of the big questions people had in their head in the 2020 primary and particularly against Trump who of course has a particularly machismo persona, I think a lot of people had decided, rightly or wrongly, a woman will not win against him, or a woman is much more less likely to win, um, in a way that they probably wouldn't have had those fears for, say, a Senate primary or something like that. I feel like, right or wrong, that idea did a lot of work in the world and you could probably have predicted people's votes quite well by the extent to which they they bought into it yeah there's a lot in there um uh, there's so i've seen some evidence um i think uh, in john sides uh lynn vabrick and michael tesler's book um, um identity crisis they talk about uh how uh, people's attitudes towards sexism um, became was was much more salient in 2016 than it was in, in 2012 and other elections before that that you could you could tell much you know there people's attitudes about um, about women and about women's role in society um, was a much better predictor of the vote than it had been in the past um, so that that was important I mean one of the things I I kind of fall back on in in, in my book is that um, if you look at the sort of like economic forecast models um, of of the vote. You know, it's just there's you know there's a a chunk of political science that just spends time sort of forecasting what we can expect in the next presidential election. You know, based on a fairly small number of things: how the economy is performing, how long the incumbent party has been in power, whether we're at war or peace. Um, you know, a few basic things that are totally separate from anything we know about the candidates running and the ads they're running and the speeches they're giving and things like that. Um, those, those models have, in recent elections have tended to do pretty well. They tend to come pretty close to predicting how, you know, what's actually going to happen even several months in advance. The forecast models on average for 2016 predicted, um, I, I think on average, a, a very narrow Republican win. Um, just simply because you had kind of a modest growth economy. Democrats had been in power for two terms. It's hard to hold on to for a third. Um, so, you know, on average, you know, Democrats would get something like 49% of the popular vote. You know, Hillary Clinton actually outperformed those models. So, yes, we only have one case of a, a woman as a presidential nominee. And I, I think you're entirely right that people may perceive the presidency in a different way than they perceive a Senate race or a gubernatorial race um, or or a congressional race. And where they, you know, they might have no qualms about voting for a woman for any of those other um, 
any of those other offices and just say, well, the presidency is different and I don't know how I feel about a woman holding this title or maybe I'd be okay with a woman, but Hillary Clinton, I don't know. Fox News has spent a quarter century demonizing her and I have a hard time getting around that. Um, so it's, it's possible that something was different there. But again, she did actually a little bit better than we would expect um, given the forecasts. Uh, you know, given these overall models. And and yeah, there's big error terms there, so we don't know, ex it's hard to be really precise with those things. But um, I, you know, I sort of question the idea that she underperformed. Um, that, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to guess that if, if that had been an election, um, you know, between say, you know, Bernie Sanders and Jeb Bush, it probably would have come out somewhat similarly. Um, although it's hard to know exactly how much the candidates had an effect there. Let me um, let me try and give you maybe a very slight pushback in that this is just my sort of best guess as to what happened. So now I'm getting into the game that you're <laughs> analysing, right? Um, my best guess is that gender did play a role for Hillary, albeit not a huge one. But I think the data that correlates sexist attitudes amongst two groups, and it's, it's weird because they process it in completely different ways. One would be the sort of, it sometimes gets called white working class. I just sometimes think it's more accurate to say white men without a college degree. That's what we're talking about. Who, um, you know, maybe helped to um, lose some of the swing states. And on the other side of the aisle, um, the... 25 or so percent of Bernie Sanders primary voters who either voted Trump, abstained, or simply just didn't follow through. I think, I, I just, I feel it in my gut, gender had something to do with both of those. Now, that's not to say that's a result that will always replicate. Maybe it's unique to that election cycle, unique to Hillary Clinton. And in any event, I think it's only worth a few points. Um, now, I think that truth can be compatible with the view that actually Hillary overperformed the fundamentals. And I think she overperformed the fundamentals because candidate quality actually does matter. It's not the main thing, but it's probably mm -hmm. on the top five. And I think there's a persistent thing where had Donald Trump been anyone other than who he is, he would be, you know, if it was Marco Rubio or somebody, right? Um, or even Ted Cruz, who's, I mean, Ted Cruz is quite disliked, but not as disliked as Marco Rubio, let's say. He, I think Marco Rubio beats Hillary in the popular vote by like two points, three points, something like that, all other things being equal. And then I think, you know, you look at Trump's first term, you know, an incumbent first term president in the middle of an economic recovery, his approval, quote-unquote, should be at least in the low 50s or something, right? Um, Obama managed better than that in the middle of a depression. So I've always sort of thought there's sort of like a Trump handicap that he runs a little bit. So, so anyway, to summarise, I think there's a Trump handicap of just he is not a pleasant person and people don't like him <laughs> of like five to six points. And I think Hillary, and I don't know if this was unique to her or will be a persistent feature, had a gender handicap of maybe about three. 
And if you just sum those two, it maps to Hillary outperforming fundamentals by like two to three, which is the data you cited. So that was long, but that's that's my take on all of that. That's like what I think happened. Anyway. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, hard to test that. Um, yeah. I, I I tend to. Yeah, I, I agree somewhat with what you're saying there. I, I would probably put those those estimates of candidate quality somewhat smaller, but I I would generally agree about the direction you've assigned to them. Um, I see, you know, Trump is is somewhat of an underperformer. Um, that he did worse than a you know a more typical Republican would have done in 2016. Um, he had lower approval ratings, um, you know, between 2017 and 2019 than a a, a typical incumbent would have, Um, you know, simply because he goes out of his way to make enemies he doesn't need to make. Um, He, you know, he doesn't need to be on Twitter every day angering people. Um, You know, in 2016, you know, he was going after Latinos, he was going after Gold Star parents, and I mean, just, you know, all sorts of enemies you don't need to make in order to get where you want. Um, and I, my suspicion is if he was doing that, yes, his, his approval rating would be higher. The, the one caveat I have with that is that, um, his, so is, is what's been going on this year in, in, in 2020. So he was trailing Biden in the polls, uh, in, in January and February by around five points. And he's now trailing him by maybe eight or so points. Um, so, you know, so the effect of uh, a massive pandemic and the economy going from, uh, you know, unemployment under 4% to unemployment over 10% is something like three points, maybe four points, that his his approval rating is, is almost unchanged from last year. Um that's fairly striking. Yeah, although although that remains true regardless of how you sum up candidate quality, what, whatever math you do, like, it's still the same. Like, he's only lost at most four points or so because of all that. Right, but I've just, you know, for, for many years I've been saying he's been underperforming where a typical incumbent would be, and now in many ways he may be overperforming. Um, he yeah. may be doing better than you'd expect, given where the economy is. Now, there's all sorts of weird things about this year that are just totally unprecedented. So, um, you know, it's hard to say what, you know, what should be happening in public opinion right now. Um, but his his approval ratings and his standing in, in the in the matchup polls have been just sort of weirdly consistent um that it's it's actually surprisingly hard to shake these even with you know very big changes in the in the fundamentals of the political universe i wonder though if it might be too uh, this is pure speculation on my part like the mm-hmm. past bit i had some data to extrapolate from here we really are in like this is just anyone's guess you know um i wonder if there's two forces that kind of cancel each other out one is the, econ- the the economy, which pulls him down. The other is the sort of quote-unquote rally around the flag effect that pulls him up. Because there was a brief, it didn't last, but a brief uptick in his numbers when it first started kicking off. And then it went down again. I don't know, I think there's a tendency people have to blame the president when the economy's bad, whether or not that makes sense. 
but to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt in a national emergency. So 9-11 would be the, the obvious example there. Again, whether or not that makes sense. And that if you just had one without the other, you might see a more dramatic movement. That's total speculation, but that might be my stab at that question. No, that's a possibility. Um, that is a possibility. And you, yeah, we you did see kind of a rally effect there early on. That was reflected in polling for governors as well. It's been reflected for approval ratings for leaders around the world um, that they had sort of a short-term bump. And I believe in places where, uh, you know, the virus has been more or less under control, those approval ratings have been remained somewhat high, that there's actually a surprising amount of substance uh, to these approval ratings, um, whereas where the virus has been more out of control, there's been higher death tolls, there's been more economic damage, um, you see leaders that are less popular. And so I, you know, my, my suspicion is that both are working against him right now. Um, but again, you know, what, what polling should look like during a pandemic um, is, uh, you know, we, we just don't have a lot of leverage on that question. We, we, haven't, we haven't seen a ton of that in the past, particularly one that lasts this long. Yeah, I guess the, the other explanation is that, and I've been a little bit wary of this explanation because I think people latched onto it because they were so shocked and unnerved by Trump's 2016 win, is there mm -hmm. actually is something special about Trump that he's able to hold on to um, not a national majority, at least in terms of the popular vote, but there is some true like 41% flaw of his numbers that just nothing will push them under them. Um, and I guess the analogy, I'll try and give it the strongest version, that Trump kind of has almost like a cult leader pull over his followers that's kind of incomprehensible from the outside, but he's kind of like sort of like an L. Ron Hubbard or like Jim Jones type figure of like objectively seems quite impressive, quite unimpressive, sorry, but just inspires a level of devotion in people that no amount of real-world falsification can ever really seem to override. He just There's something about his appeal that just goes straight to the lizard brain. I don't know if I necessarily buy that, but that is definitely something that people think, you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things in there. I'm, I, I kind of resist the idea of describing him as a cult leader simply because cults tend to be small by definition. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're people who live in a, in a tight community and they have like, you know, physical proximity to each other. Um, but Trump has a couple of advantages. Um, one is that, I mean, first of all, he's now the incumbent, um, and incumbents typically only can lose so much of the, of the, uh, support. I mean, yeah, George W. Bush managed to, you know, get his, uh, his approval rating down to the low 30s, I think even the high 20s briefly. Um, but, you know, favorite statistic for me is the, the um, you know, Herbert Hoover running for re-election in 1932. Um, you know, he came into office with a booming economy. When his, his last year in office, the economy lost 25% of its value. Um, the economy it literally shrank by a quarter. Um, you know, it, it, essentially it's like the worst performance on an economy that we, we have in history. And um, he still pulls 40% of the vote. And no president has ever really done worse than that. 
Um, so, you know, you get the benefit of having a party with you um, when you're that party's nominee. I mean, and I don't think anyone thinks if Bush could have run for a third term, he'd have actually got 28% of the vote. Like, right. he wouldn't have won, but presumably some people who weren't super fans of him would have come back round. You, you, you would assume, right? And if anything, we're more partisan now? I mean, I don't know about Hoover's time, but we're more partisan now than we were 40 years ago. So maybe that floor is a little bit higher and more robust. I don't know. I don't know. I Yes, yes. I, I think that floor is higher. Um, I think it's, you know, part of it is just I think the electorate is, is, is more partisan than it used to be. And that um, you have this chunk of the of the electorate who will simply vote for its party's nominee, no matter what conditions are, no matter who the person is. Um, I think to some extent we need to acknowledge the role that race has played in all this, um, that, uh, you know, he is much more explicit about um, his racial beliefs, about um, you know, really, you know, denigrating uh, people of color than at, at least any president since uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, probably earlier than that. Um, and that is something that the majority of American voters find repugnant, but not a huge majority. Um, that there is actually a, you know, a, 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 an appreciable minority of voters who actually find that refreshing. And it's not even that they necessarily agree with every aspect of it, but they like that someone is saying it. And um, they they use, you know, euphemisms to describe it like, oh, well, he's, you know, because he's willing to occasionally say some racist things, he's that makes him authentic. That makes him real. That means he's he's not playing by everyone's politically correct rules. Um, but that um, that appeals to some white voters. And uh, it has, I think, more of an appeal than we would have thought prior to 2016 and that, that we were uh, necessarily comfortable admitting. Um, and. Uh, beyond that, there's also the media environment, which I think has changed somewhat in recent years. Um, it's, it is quite fascinating to, you know, particularly Fox News has, has had, a, I, I think, a, a pretty powerful effect on, on politics in that they, you know, it, it will vary from reporter to reporter or from commentator to commentator on that network, but there are a number of commentators, you know, particularly like people like Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity and others who um, almost never will criticize him and really make a point of saying they are not there to provide any sort of check on him. Um, they're there to help him. They are there to augment his message, to provide a uh, essentially a safe space for him to, you know, to, um, to deliver a message he wants to uh, his set of supporters out there. And that's something that there certainly is some of that in um, media on the left, but I think not uh, not nearly as overt. And it's something that uh, liberal journalists have just never found comfort with. Um, and that that almost assuredly helps him. I mean, it means, you know, the the fairly substantial um, chunk of the electorate that gets its news from its political news from Fox News um, will very rarely see a story that's critical of Trump. And I, I think that has some effect here, that they, they, um, they are getting, you know, fairly pro-administration stories um, out of something that is ostensibly neutral. 
Um, so it is, uh, you know, I, I think that that helps put a floor on his approval ratings and, um, you know, it, it, I think it, it contributes to the polarization we're seeing. Can I pick up on the race bit? Because I think this is at the heart of um, both. I mean, it, it's part of the floor thing, um, but it's at the heart of it. It's both why Trump, part of why Trump won in 2016, but also it's part of why the left found his win so unfathomable. But But the fact that they found it unfathomable ironically made him more likely to win. So it's kind of a, a, a circle. But here, here's what I think happened is I think there's always been um, a substantial minority of uh, white Americans who hold overtly racist views. Um, so something like, I don't want black people to live in my neighborhood will still get you 20, 25% of white people on a survey. It's not a majority, um, but it's enough to be a major force in a Republican primary. And then on top of that, you have another 20% or so who won't quite own that opinion, but they'll own the opinion, say, blacks don't get ahead because they're lazy, or they'll own the opinion um, white people are more discriminated against than black people today. I think about 40% of white Americans um, believe that. Now, what, what had happened for a long time is the Republican Party had been in a sort of state of affairs where starting with the Civil Rights Act and the sort of so-called Southern strategy, they'd been competing for Southern votes, racist Southern votes, in a very coded way by saying, like, states' rights or something, um, while Democrats were still competitive in that region, while also trying to get, say, your middle-class New Englander to also buy into the ticket. And what's happened, I think, over the, just there's like a line on a graph going up over the last 30, 40 50 even years, is the percentage of the Republican vote that was coming from people with either overtly or subtly racist commitments went up and up and up and up, and the share that was coming from, like, your New Englander who likes his property taxes low sort of went down and down and down and down to the point where once you got to Trump, it was kind of like the process had completed and you don't need to be coded anymore. There's just not that many people left who will be put off by that. And you can win a Republican primary on it. And you can't quite win a general. You can get to like 40, 41, maybe on a good day, 45% of the population with that. But nobody saw that coming. They thought you can't just come out and say this because they had in their head overt racists are like 2% of the population, which they're not. They never were. And... Because the left didn't think he could win, we just didn't mobilise against him. Like, I've seen now the Bernie or Bust thing, people who sound as supporters who won't vote for the, 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 um, the general election candidate. That's been reduced by about two-thirds this time round. And it's because we understand that it's real now. Um, so there, there is a national 40-45% for racism. There always has been. It's just directly consolidated behind one party now, whereas before it was divided. But we just couldn't believe that was the truth. And because we couldn't believe it was the truth, there was an opening for it to get in when it couldn't command a national majority. So that was very long, but that, that is why I thought he would win. 
and mm-hmm. my read on sort of what the underlying mechanics of that were. I'll pause there if you want to tell me I'm wrong or build off that at all. No, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think I think there's an additional wrinkle there that, um, you know, there is, I, I you know, I agree with you. There's, there's a, a substantial chunk of, um, of the white electorate that, you know, has views that we would generally consider pretty racist. Um, they don't automatically use that when making a voting decision. And so there was, you know, I wish I could find it. There's a wonderful story, possibly apocryphal from, from 2008, um, of, uh, pollsters or journalists uh, going door to door in rural Pennsylvania, asking people in 2008, whether they were going to vote for, uh, Barack Obama or John McCain. And they end up talking to this one a white woman at her doorstep and just say, you know, who do you plan to vote for? And she, uh, she goes, she briefly confers with her husband and then comes back out and just sighs and says, I guess we're going to vote for the N word. Um, and which in some ways it's like this fascinating moment that yeah, there's plenty of racism there, but given sort of where the economy was at that time. And given the fact that, both Obama and McCain had kind of gone out of their way to not make that an election about race, um, to to discuss that as little as possible. Um, that the election could turn on other things. That it could it could be a discussion of, uh, you know, the Great Recession. It could be a discussion, sort of a referendum on the Iraq War and and other things. Um, so you know, just because there is a a racist element in in the country does not mean that um, you know, a black man from Chicago can't get elected to the presidency twice. Um, on the other hand, in 2016, you know, it's the, the, it's a very different election where, um, you know, you have at least one candidate going in and saying, I'm making this explicitly about race. And I am saying, you know, if, if, if you're white and you feel like you haven't been getting a fair shake because of everything else that's going on, you know, I'm your candidate. And he really tapped into there's wonderful book uh, last year, um, uh, Ashley Jardina's book, uh, White Identity Politics, that talks about sort of increasing, um, just over the last two decades, really, increasing identity of white Americans to see themselves as part of a race, to see themselves as white rather than um, just not something else. Um, and that doesn't necessarily lead to racial animus. It doesn't necessarily um, mean that they um, they hate black people or they hate Latinos or anyone else. Um, but it means that there is this uh, this thing that a candidate can stir um, that, that can sort of tap into this this sense of identity and say, hey, we're you know, we are a collective. We are a race and we're um, we're falling behind because these other groups are getting ahead of us. And, you know, there's and a, a, you know, his candidacy was really able to activate that um, among the American electorate in 2016. That doesn't mean it'll work every year. Um, but I think um, to get back sort of to the, you know, the, the main thrust of my book, which is about the power of these narratives, I think Democrats came out of 2008 with this narrative that um, uh, that they'd overcome something that racism wasn't necessarily a barrier to high office anymore, um, that 
uh, you know, the, the, and I think journalists came out with it with a similar reaction that like you simply can't get away with an explicitly racist campaign anymore. That just doesn't work in the U.S. Um, and I think a lot of folks were blindsided to see, you know, how how effective that still could be. Um, I, and I think uh, so. I can't remember where I got this stat from, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. So uh, I'll maybe issue a fact correct when I put this out. But if you look at the overtly racist chunk of the white population, so the 15 to 20 percent who just hold out and out racist views. What's fascinating is Obama got about 30 percent of that vote. It's not, mm. it's not like, to sort of cash out your, your anecdote about, I guess I'll vote for the N-word, like, um, and Hillary did worse with overt racists than Obama did. Um, so it's not, it's never been as just as simple as that, I guess you could say it never is. Um, but then that does speak to the question of okay, well, what do you, what do you do about it? But I think it's it's very much to the point of it's not too much identity politics on our side per se. It's identity politics on theirs. It's Trump's making appeals that some people find, which we may think are despicable, but some people find attractive. Um. Yes. Yes. And I think what some, you know, a fair number of people within the Democratic Party were saying was that maybe those attacks would be less effective against a uh, a moderate white guy than they were against Hillary Clinton. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't necessarily obvious ahead of time that a um, that that you know coming up with an explicitly uh, a pro-white uh, agenda would necessarily hurt Hillary Clinton. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there were kind of a combination of things built into that, you know, the gender assumptions and, and just sort of beliefs about where the Democratic Party was. Um, but I think a lot of Democrats came out of that saying that um, if we were to put someone like Joe Biden up, that uh, Trump's racist appeals would simply have less cachet. Uh, that would be it would be harder to make them work. And that we just we just we give him less ammo by doing this. I think that was a big part of it. I, I'm sorry. No, can we quickly do the other side of it, which is the ideology thing, because this is something I'm yeah. fascinated by. Sure. Um, so the other side of that is um, so we've talked through a bunch of narratives about like the um, gender or race of the nominee, or like how they talk about those things. The other side of that, which I think didn't make as much an appearance as people perhaps on the far left wanted it to, is a sort of battle over the future ideological direction of the Democratic Party. And both sides, the sort of so-called progressives and centrists, um, really tried to say, you know, our way, in a way that I think neither made a great deal of sense, to be honest, our way is the way to win. If you run Bernie Sanders, my God, you, you run a socialist, will lose in a landslide. And on Bernie Sanders' side saying, you run another weak neoliberal shill, their language, um, you know, you won't have the base enthusiasm or young person turnout or whatever. And I, I always felt both of those narratives were like somewhat disconnected from the facts and the overall effect of ideology would probably be quite small and around the, the margins, but it was, a, it was a fairly big part of the campaign. 
Yes. Um, and this is something you, you can hear in a lot of Democratic arguments after 2016. Um, you know, particularly some of the I, I spend some time in the book going through um, debates among DNC members when they're talking about party reform in the years after. Um, there's a lot of arguments about, you know, whether moderation is the way to greater votes or whether uh, they should be trying to <clears throat> engage more of the, you know, the the enthusiasm of the progressive left. Um, it's it, this is one of the areas, one of the, I think very few areas of narratives where we actually have some decent evidence. Um, and there have been a, a, quite a few studies done, mostly looking at congressional elections, um, finding that, yes, in fact, moderate candidates tend to do better um, than more liberal or more conservative candidates, you know, and controlling for their district and, you know, where their electorates are and things like that, um, that there actually is an electability um, uh, effect. And if you have a more moderate record, um, people tend to people tend to vote for you more. Um, now, it's harder to translate that into the presidential level. Um, we don't have as wide a range of ideology of, of, you know, looking at presidential candidates. You have these two really big cases in the middle of the 20th century. You've got uh, Barry Goldwater, who was widely seen as an, an extreme right winger getting wiped out in 1964. You've got um, George McGovern, seen as, a, as, as kind of a left wing extremist, uh, getting wiped out in 1972. And and, you know, at that time, the party sort of internalized this message. Um, oh, you know, we can't go with our extremists. We have to nominate more more moderate, presentable candidates. But we haven't really tested it a lot at that level. For the most part, we, we tend to get, you know, relatively centrist um, candidates at the presidential level. Um, but uh, it's it's certainly something that um, that people within the party argue about. A lot. And, you know, one of the, I think the challenging things is that I don't think anyone's quite clear on um, where exactly Hillary Clinton was ideologically in 2016. For, you know, if, if you talk to Sanders supporters, they would tell, well, she's, you know, they will say exactly yeah. she was, you know, she was further to the right than, uh, you know, than maybe even Dwight Eisenhower, that she was, uh, you know, she was a neoliberal uh, she, she was a, you know, kind of a sellout of a lot of issues that they cared about. Um, if you talk to some of her supporters or, you know, or political centrists, they would say this was one of the most, uh, liberal presidential candidates the Democratic Party has ever put forward. Um, she was, you know, an avowed feminist. She was actually running well to the left of where she ran in 2008. Um, you know, she was running explicitly on a, a message of inclusion um, in, in a way that, that previous Democratic presidents really hadn't be, or presidential candidates really hadn't before. Um, and so, you know, people can sort of see, they can learn what narrative they want to learn from that. Hmm. Um, you can say she lost she was too, because she was too sent. And, and well, certainly Republicans Certainly Republicans saw her as very liberal, and then the far yes. left saw her as anything, anything but. So she kind of got the worst of both worlds in a, yes. lot, of, in a lot of ways. Um, I think... I think people really made inferences from data that doesn't quite cash out the point. So I think the Bernie people, they, they looked at 2016 
Now, keep in mind, the Bernie people, they thought Hillary would win as well, but afterwards there was this sort of Bernie would have won narrative grew up, and the idea was Hillary lost because of her moderation. Um, th that might be true in that there were some Bernie supporters who withheld their votes, but I don't think it's true that the larger public was viewing it through that lens. At the same time, I think where the sort of quote-unquote establishment centrist side is coming in is not 2016 but 2018, where you had a bunch of groups like the Justice Dems and so on be like, we're going to run progressive candidates and take back a bunch of seats and... Um, in any competitive district, I think the Justice Dems were not for 16 or something like that. Whereas the, the sort of quote-unquote establishment people, um, they really did well, particularly in a lot of these suburban districts. So I think like a lot of the party looks at the Bernie people and said, you had your chance to prove this in the midterms. You, you not only came up short, but you came up embarrassingly short. Um, no, we're not going to entrust the presidential election to you. And I think, regardless of if they're true or not, I think that both narratives are overstated, people have come to really firmly believe them um, in a way that I'm not quite sure how Bernie Sanders supporters now square the circle of Biden leading. I guess they just say it's because of the pandemic. But people really, really, really came to believe them. And I've cited the data you did that there's like a 2 to 4% edge in congressional elections. To mm -hmm. people invested in the in the um, in the um, Sanders narrative, and they just don't believe it. They just say that's not true. Like, and it's I think it's so weird. Like, those ideas do such work in the world, but they're quite weak marginal effects at best. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there was uh, there was this documentary that came out last year on the twenty eighteen midterms. Um, was it Bringing Down the House? I think that's the title. Um, that follows a number of um, progressive women who were running um, for, for Congress on the Democratic side, one of whom um, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And and I, I can't remember how many candidates they follow. It's maybe four or five women. Um, and who uh in, in just different parts of the country it's a it's a good documentary you know, you know it's, it's it's very enjoyable to see how they how they campaign but it sort of tries to portray it as here's this mass movement um here's this this massive shift to the left that's coming and uh you know look how they transform politics and and with the exception of aoc they all lose right um and, and that's and that's primary losses i don't think they're yet to put down a single Republican to Democrat conversion in a swing. Like, a, a, occasionally they'll take down a an incumbent Dem in, like, a very safe district, and even then they lose most of the time. And I've worked on these races. Like, it is hard to take down incumbents, and it is hard to flip seats. And I think the establishment's point of view is you have to show us that you can do that before we trust you to lead the party. I think that's where they're coming from. It's not a ridiculous place to be. Yeah, honestly, it is. Uh, it happens rarely. I mean, and, and we've seen a few cases in in this cycle in, in both parties where, uh, you know, one or two uh, challengers will actually take down an incumbent of their own party, <laughs> and um, you know, it happened here in Colorado. Uh, uh, Scott Tipton, a Republican in third congressional district, lost to um, uh, Lauren Boebert. No one really saw that coming, but those are really rare. 
Um, those happen just a handful of times per cycle. And, you know, the what much more normally happens is that someone will challenge uh, an incumbent and lose because uh, the party is actually a thing. Uh, the party has resources and they will protect their incumbents often because they believe in them and like the work that they're doing. Um, and what's even more common is that incumbents don't get challenged at all because um, parties protect them, because other challengers look out there and say, I'm not going to waste my time doing this challenge. I'm not going to um, you know, try and, and raise all this money and uh, and do all the effort to only fail. Um, I will wait for, you know, I'll either look for another opportunity to serve or I will wait for this seat to be open. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I, I think we, we focus a lot on like these sort of these AOC upsets that turn out to be, um, uh, they're, they're important and they keep incumbents on their toes, but they, uh, they are incredibly rare. If that's, you know, so just cause I, I feel like I just want to upset everybody and both sides of this are wrong. If that's what I'd say to like the Bernie Sanders supporter is like, you know, you have this theory of. You know, I agree with you on most of your politics, by the way, but you have this sort of theory of change that, like, is not, well, is not validated by either what we know from political science or your track record in elections. Um, like, you need to show me the goods. That's what I'd say to the Sanders supporter. To the sort of quote-unquote centrist who says, my God, you run Sanders or Warren, you'll get destroyed. I'd say, well, one, the effect is quite small it's a few points and they say well it's still a few points that could decide a close election i say two most of that seems to come from the fact that it boosts turnout on the other side you activate your own base but you also activate the the opponent's base i don't i think a lot of what puts people what might put people off about say a sanders or so on is rhetorical it's about framing it's like don't call yourself a socialist for instance, don't make your signature policy um, Medicare for all, which has a particularly unpopular component. Make it the wealth tax that people quite like, you know? And that I think you could probably run a solidly progressive candidate if they were willing to rhetorically moderate and lead with issues that are popular in a way that you'd incur either a very small penalty to none at all. And so I think this idea of, like, we couldn't possibly stake out a more egalitarian populist position, it would sure to sink the ship. I think that argument, too, is overstated. I'll pause there. Mm. Yeah, and uh, this is reminding me... Um, I actually want to pivot back to my, my book for a second here. Yeah, just to talk a little bit about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, someone could have... Yeah, that was sort of who I had in mind with that yeah. spiel. Go ahead. And we could sort of watch her candidacy and say, um, you know, if she had come up with a maybe a more moderate message um, that she might have done better. And, and you know, but certainly it's possible. Um, I, the the thing that I'm arguing in in my book is that the the deck was stacked against her and other candidates from very early on. Um, that um, and I I honestly think just sort of watching her you know throughout the year on on just a purely sort of technical campaign level I think she ran a very good campaign. 
I, you know, she's probably one of the best public speakers in the party. Uh, she can, I think, defend her positions better than anyone. Um, uh, she had really good stump speeches. She had, I, I think, clever advertisements. I mean, there were a lot I, I, I would really commend her on. Um, and no, that did not translate into a victory. Um, and I think that, that the party, uh, broadly speaking, made a decision that they were not going to nominate someone like her. Um, that they were going to nominate someone like Joe Biden, that they were going, that they were, they were concerned about identity. They were concerned about, um, the party appearing too progressive or, or, um, uh, you know, just, just the appearance of nominating a, um, you know, an outspoken feminist as they had in 2016. And that, that really did far more to hurt her, um, than any particular stance she took on Medicare for all or, or, or anything like that. And I, I think that's true of, of, uh, really lots of the, uh, lots of the other candidates running. I, you know, just watching those d debates and speeches, you know, I don't, I wouldn't put Biden anywhere near the top in most of those, uh, campaign skills. Um, but he, he benefited strongly from the fact that, um, people within the party had just decided this is the way we're going. And, uh, you know, this, this is what can get us a win and a win is far more important right now than any of these particular issues that we necessarily care for. Yeah. I mean, yes, I think people had thought that way. Uh, also Elizabeth Warren, like you say, is a woman. And I think there was a big section of the party who were terrified of non running a woman against Trump in a way that may have been a bit overblown. And yes, they didn't want to run a leftist. Again, I think in a way that maybe got out ahead of the data on that. Um, mm. And then you can say, okay, well, if they wanted, and I, and this is what my friends who work for the DNC say, is okay, but could you maybe have had like an old white guy um, who's a progressive um, and you sort of sidestep the woman, the identity thing, and old white guys, for instance, say, who actually doesn't talk that much about social issues, i.e. Sanders. And I think the answer to that is no, they specifically didn't want Sanders. They, they were upset with him after 2016. Um, they didn't like the way he stayed in the race after it was clear that he lost. And th th there's maybe a scenario if Trump wasn't there and 2016 hadn't been as ugly as it had been, where they could have swallowed some, like, safe-sounding old white guy progressive, but they specifically weren't having Sanders, I think, is, was, was another story there. Yeah, I have... Um, so one of the things I did over the course of this book is do... Um, is I, I just... The, the activists who I'd interviewed early on, I just... Um, I would run a survey with them. I would just come back to them every two months throughout 2019 and early 2020 and just say... You know, just ask them a few questions about how the race was shaping up. Um, simply like, well, which candidates do you like? Which candidates are you considering right now? And then also ask them, who do you definitely not want to see as the party's nominee? And uh, it was interesting because throughout that time, Sanders um, was one of the highest in both categories. That is, he had a loyal set of supporters with among the activists I, I was talking to. Um, I, I can't remember exactly how many, um, it was ma maybe a quarter or so, or to a third of the people I was talking to really liked him and liked him from early on and were not, and could not be shaken from that belief. Um, and then you had, a, you know, at least roughly half the party who said, definitely do not nominate this man. <laughs> um, whereas others, they were much more popular, but had fewer negatives or they had more negatives, but weren't very popular. 
Um, he was a very polarizing figure in the party. And I think a lot of that was stemming from people's experience with him in 2016. Um, the, 2016, they, if you've, I don't know if you're, you're married or whatever, but like, if, if you ever like have a fight with like a loved one or something, you know those fights that like aren't, seem to they, they just you just can't get out from them like you'll think it's over and then you'll get back like days later you'll you'll find yourself bickering about it again the 2016 primary is the national political equivalent of that it's just like the fight that we just cannot seem to get ourselves <laughs> beyond and it i think that's so right with sanders i find it fascinating like the the extreme emotions that he brings out of people both for and against i think almost like a psychological point of view well i'll, I'll decline the opportunity to, to discuss yeah. my marriage at this point but no, no. Uh, the uh but i i think your your metaphor is correct in the sense i i was just watching the um democratic party debate among itself throughout like 2017 and 2018 when they were talking about things like what do we do with superdelegates you know how do, do we need to reform the, the party's nomination system do we need to change the way caucuses are done, should we consider open primaries? Um, the Clinton-Sanders divide from 2016 really dictated everything from that. And there was there was kind of a racial divide that came out of that. There was sort of an experience within the party divide that came that was that was related to that as well. Um, uh, but overwhelmingly, like people's feelings about Sanders and about his 2016 campaign really lingered heavily from that. I have a whole chapter in the book about how. Um, if you look at the way Democratic donors gave to primary candidates in, in gubernatorial races in 2018, um, in, in gubernatorial primaries, um, that was heavily structured by whether they gave to Sanders or Clinton in 2016. Um, so that was just that sort of that tapped into an ongoing sort of progressive versus establishment divide. Um, and, you know, people who uh, if you liked Sanders, you liked the candidates that he endorsed. Um, and if you distrusted Sanders, you you really you turned against the candidates that he endorsed. It had a it, it had a uh, I think it continues to structure the party. One of the more surprising things in 2020 really was uh, in many ways how quickly the nomination contest came to a close. Um, that, you know, after Super Tuesday, uh, it was pretty clear that things were trending in Biden's direction, but it had seemed that way four years earlier when in Clinton's direction. Um, yet um, Sanders made the decision to, uh, you know, just not contest it heavily at that point. Um, once, you know, and whether that, that, there's a number of things going, um, operating there. I mean, part of that I think is, is the COVID environment, which was, you know, even if he wanted to sustain a serious campaign against Biden, the idea of doing that in subsequent primaries that were looking very dicey at that point, it was unclear what the convention was going to be at that point. I, I think it looked dicier. Um, and also the fact that I think, um, I don't know how much weight to put on it, but Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden seem to generally, genuinely like each other in a way that Sanders and Clinton never did. That's, um, that's what I've read. Um, yeah. Who knows if that's right, but it would be an interesting validation of sort of Biden's style of politics that he got that endorsement much quicker and much easier because he's just kind of like an affable guy. I'm I'm very skeptical of that those sorts of narratives in politics. I I don't think Biden will be able to charm Senate Republicans into voting for his agenda. But I mean, maybe no, with maybe uh... with Bernie, that's an interesting sort of counterpoint to like my generally overly determinist worldview. That like sometimes it just is personal, you know. 
Well, yeah, I, I tend to I'm very suspicious that Biden would be able to char charm Republicans. But within the Democratic Party, he has a very long history of simply he builds coalitions. That is very much Biden style. Um, he's he's very much coalitionally oriented. He's willing to make compromises. And, uh, you know, Sanders, I think at one point said um, uh, Biden was nice to me before he needed to be. Um, that he, he treated with respect even when he was just this kind of nobody backbencher. And uh, and now how much does gender play into that as well? Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, was it did he not get along with Hillary Clinton as well? Um, was that did some did that have to do with gender? Was that about her personality? I don't know. Um, there's there's so many things overlapping in there at the same time. It's hard to really know. But nonetheless, um, and some of that is, I think, maybe the legacy of 2016, where I don't know if Bernie feels this way, but certainly some people loyal to him feel like, oh, you know what? Maybe that lengthy campaign we did to undermine Hillary Clinton actually hurt the party in 2016, and we got Trump as a result. And maybe we shouldn't do that again. Um, I think that that's so, so interesting, because that's definitely said of Bernie, and that's one of the big reasons people don't like him. And one of the things they said when he started his campaign is, y'all are not recognising how much there is a contingent who hates you. Um, mm -hmm. That is it's not even about ideology or anything like that. Um, I think there's a lot of supporters who absolutely, till their dying breath, will never give an inch on that. It was all Hillary Clinton's fault because she's a neoliberal sellout shell. I wonder if there's another contingent who maybe a lot more quietly and behind the scenes have sort of said to Bernie, if Trump is re-elected, do you want your legacy to be that you helped that happen both times? Is that what you want to be remembered for in American politics? I don't know. I've no idea. But I, 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 I do wonder what was said behind closed doors in those sorts of, you, you know. I, I wonder. I do really wonder where Bernie's heart and soul is at. Is he in his heart of hearts? Is Bernie a Bernie bro? Or is he more <laughs> self-aware and pragmatic than that? I don't know. And I find it a really interesting question. <laughs> I mean, it's one, one will never settle. But um, I, I do get the impression he's someone who does keep his own counsel on these things and uh, I think considers what his what his legacy might look like, um, you know, particularly as he's getting near 80, has suffered a heart attack recently and, and, and thinking about what that legacy might look like. I think I think if I was him, I would <laughs> be terrified that my legacy would be I helped elect and reelect Trump. Um, mm -hmm. Um, okay, I, I've been keeping you far too long. Final question, then, is... Here's one I really don't know. I've been saying I don't know for a bunch of these and then giving you my hunches. <laughs> um, how do these narratives inform what a Biden presidency might look like, assuming he wins, which is a pretty big if? But it seems like people's priors on all of this are leading to just radically different projections. Of course, Bernie people think he will sell out and compromise in every which way. There's another narrative that he's actually going to be like hyper progressive and almost sort of like a Lyndon Johnson type figure. My, my gut is the truth is somewhere in between, but that's pure gut. I really, because in many ways, Biden isn't that ideological. Um, I really struggle to think like what his presidency might look like. What, what's your feeling on that? It's, I mean, it's difficult to imagine. He, 
and it's obviously it's really difficult to predict what's what's what this election ultimately looks like but he stands to inherit a a pretty transformative election um you know it's 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 not that often that an incumbent is defeated um and if that happens if he's elected with a uh, a pretty substantial percentage of the vote um he has in, in you know in some ways he i'm sure he'll be discussing it as a, a kind of a mandate to make some serious changes. I mean, I'm tapping into some work that political scientist Julia Zari has done on this. Um, it's hard to imagine and associate Biden with that. At the same time, it was also hard to imagine, uh, say, uh, Franklin Roosevelt as being really a transformative president. He was certainly not that way prior to his presidency. Um, uh, Biden is he's in a very interesting position. I, I agree with you that he's not a particularly ideological character. Um, he has a rather impressive history of being almost at the exact center ideologically of the Democratic Party over the last roughly 50 years. Um, and I think that I don't think that's a coincidence. I think he actually has kind of a skill of reading the Democratic room. That is, you know, he has a sense of where this coalition is. He's always thinking in terms of that. And so when you see that, you know, he is actually embracing a, a, a fairly progressive um, agenda for his campaign. I mean, he's, you know, he's talking about, you know, he, he, he doesn't come out with the 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 really value laden um, terms like he hasn't he doesn't embrace uh, Medicare for all. He hasn't talked about Green New Deal specifically, but he has talked about, you know, fairly dramatic steps on climate change. He's talked about, um, you know, fairly dramatic steps on health care reform, um, certainly on 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 um, combating the virus, certainly on economic reform. Um, and that's kind of a reflection of where the Democratic Party is, that he sees people like uh, Bernie Sanders and AOC and uh, and others as people he needs to negotiate with to keep in the fold. And he, he doesn't necessarily want to be as progressive as they are, but he sees them as someone he needs to negotiate with and keep happy. And uh, so, you know, I think related to this will be um, what I think is an unusual question is, is just by his age, does he see himself as running for president should he win? as running for re-election, should he win? Um, or does he see himself as a kind of a one-term transitional president who will uh, would hand off things to, you know, presumably Kamala Harris at his, as his heir apparent? Um, that's hard to say, and I, I suppose it would depend somewhat among, you know, about how things would go during his term. Um, and, you know, if, if the economy recovers and the, the, the virus goes into recession. Um, but... Uh, the you know the the conditions for a fairly transformative election i think are there um it's again i i have a hard time sort of envisioning joe biden in this role of a you know of, of, a, of a lincoln fdr reagan type but um in 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 some ways the you know the the positioning is there and i think the in many ways the democratic party is looking for that sort of leadership right now and and prepared to back someone that way it's so, yeah, because, like, it doesn't seem to fit, but then, you know, stranger things have happened in history. And, of course, he'll he'll have to take the Senate, right? Like, he, if he doesn't, then he's just, it's just like the Obama second term or something like that. 
But if he does, say with like 52, 53... You know, the, I can hear the Bernie people saying, but he doesn't really believe any of it. Yes, he says it in public, but in private he's a neoliberal shill and he's never going to go against his business donors. I don't think that's the barrier. I think the barrier is to what extent will he be willing to change institutions and institutional norms to get it done? Will you end the filibuster? Will you, if not court pack, take an aggressive role to the, the courts striking down your legislation? You know, will you add Puerto Rico and DC as states? Um, and until very recently, my, my take was no, but I'm increasingly getting a vibe from the party, like with Obama's speech at John Lewis's funeral, that actually, no, these guys intend to govern. I've no idea, but I think it's fascinating. I, I agree with you on this, that my impression of Biden, particularly, you know, someone who is a multi-decade senator, mm. um, you know, particularly like the biggest defenders of the filibuster tend to be senators and former yeah. senators. Um, and Biden is someone who's like always, you know, really respected Senate institutions and a lot of U.S. traditions that, that he would be less likely to uh, engage some of that. On the other hand, if Democrats take a majority of the Senate, they don't necessarily need Joe Biden's permission to do this. Mm. Um, and I, I think there are a number of areas where, um, you know, even we could talk about, you know, statehood or something like that, where um, uh, more progressive Democrats than Biden can simply move ahead and do things um, without Biden ever really needing to endorse them. Mm. Um, and he could even say, boy, I wouldn't have done it that way. Um, or I'm not comfortable with this and just let it happen. And he sort of is portrayed as as kind of the, you know, the pragmatic centrist, even while his party becomes, um, uh, you know, a, a lot more left and, and, and a lot more governable. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, before you go, you want to just um, remind listeners of your book and anywhere else, website, Twitter, that they should go to follow you. Oh, thank you. Yes. So the book is called Learning from Loss, the Democrats 2016 to 2020. Uh, it comes out from Cambridge University Press on September 22nd. It's currently available for pre-sale on Amazon and, and wherever else books are sold. Um, also, uh, folks can follow me at on Twitter at Smotus, S-M-O-T-U-S. Um, that's just Seth Maskett of the United States. Um, I'm, I'm on there way too often, so you should be able to find me. Okay. Awesome. Um, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>